Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, Babbel, Ethos, Robinhood, and our contributors at Patreon for making tonight's show possible. How does one investigate the unknown? Where do we begin when there is little to no empirical evidence? We're usually forced to resort to a type of analysis that many find unacceptable when it comes to determining the truth. Study of oral history, lore, and the often maligned eyewitness account. In doing that, however, we've become pretty good at getting to the root of a story in the face of limited hard evidence. Conversely, we've also learned how wrong it is to completely disregard the human component of these stories. That must be taken into account, and the character of various individuals has to be evaluated to the best of our ability so that we can attempt to understand how information might be filtered by the source it's coming from. The Patterson-Gimlin film is different from our usual legend. The film itself is empirical evidence. It is not circumstantial. It is not hearsay. It is not anecdotal. It's a 16 millimeter film shot at a time when camera trickery of the type it would take to hoax it was impossible for the layman and also impossible to conceal upon close inspection by today's modern methods of technical analysis, which the filmmaker could never have conceived of becoming available a half century later. An interesting thing happened when we posted part one of this series. Comments began pouring into various threads on all of our social media platforms before the show was even available for playback. Most of you were excited we were finally taking a look at the PGF, and many of you had already made up your minds about whether it's real or a hoax. And in many cases, that was because you've researched it yourself. Sometimes a little, sometimes a lot. We're glad to have you folks here with us now because by the time we're done with this series, you'll have heard from an actor and friend of our show who wore a monkey costume in a feature film an expert costume maker and film analyst who's done years of analysis on the PGF, digitizing nearly 30,000 frames from every available copy of it at up to 5K of resolution. And believe it or not, you'll hear from Bob Gimlin himself, whom we met and spoke to personally just a few days ago as of this recording. So if you've already drawn a conclusion about the film based on a very limited intersection with the evidence surrounding it, we're excited to have you here with us now. It's you that we want to hear what we found during our investigation of this landmark piece of cryptid history. And it's you we want to assure that there is so much more to this story than you think. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Whether we like it or not, he is here with us on this planet today in the 20th century. A creature of enormous historical significance. A ghost from a long dead day that should whet the imagination of the young at heart, the adventurer, and the eternal individualist, Roger Patterson. Join us tonight for part two of our series on the Patterson-Gimlin film. Unlike Patty, she left. She did, but into the bushes or another dimension? Ooh, this is a good question. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, well, actually, I don't know if it's a good question. Either no, way, thanks be. for joining us for part two of our series on the Patterson-Gimlin film. When we decided to cover this, we didn't realize the story would become so gripping for us. It's the best kind of legend for us to explore because we get wrapped up in it. 
There's always so much more to these stories than you first think, and this one's a great example of that. Well, it's all about the implications of what the film may mean, and I know there are a lot of players, there are some interesting personalities, characters, you might say, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of information to take in. Before we get started on part two, folks, we wanted to take a minute to recommend our favorite new podcast player, Himalaya. It's an app you can get for any platform, and it just works a ton better than pretty much all the other ones out there right now. Yeah, it's definitely the easiest one to use that I've seen lately, and it's been nice using one that is actually intuitive. Look for the Himalaya app wherever you get your apps, and after you download it, be sure and give us a follow on it. All right, let's get back to the PGF. Now, a note about the film processing. And you might be thinking to yourself, why are these two geeks going to talk about film processing in a geeky manner? <laughs> who cares where they took it and why and who cares about the film stock? Well, it just so happens this is a major point of contention for the skeptics and critics of the PGF that the timeline where this film processing supposedly takes place doesn't work out for a truthful story because the timeline for getting the 16 millimeter film developed is for the skeptics a big point about the authenticity of the film and that they don't believe that Patterson could have had it processed with that short of a turnaround time. Therefore, to the skeptics, it was more likely that the PGF had been staged and shot earlier and that it was part of an elaborate hoax by Patterson and probably Gimlin and some others like Diatli and with Bob Hieronymus wearing an ape costume. Yeah, people really get hung up on this. And I have an overall bone of contention with regard to people fixating on the mm. timeline of the film anyway, because for me, the film itself is empirical evidence and it doesn't really matter when or how it was processed. It all comes back you to look what's at the on film. It, sure. Yeah, you look at what's on it. If it's a hoax, you determine that by looking at the film. Well, the film Patterson used, as we've stated, was 16 millimeter Kodachrome 2, which is a color reversal, meaning it, it has no negative. The processed film is in positive, so you can actually look at it like slide film. Well, it's considered a slow speed film with an ASA rating of 25, an ASA being an arithmetic measurement of film speed or its sensitivity to light developed by the American Standards Association. That's where you get the ASA. Yeah. If you're an old film buff like me, you knew that. But nowadays, film speed is measured by an ISO rating. So the slower or lower the film speed number, the longer an exposure or lower f-stop or wider aperture necessary to produce a properly exposed image. So it's better in bright daylight conditions. Now this will be important later because we're going to examine if Roger knew what he was doing with the camera and... Or if was he, he just an amateur that got a hold of a, a nicer camera? Because the 16 millimeter camera is a nicer camera to be shooting with under these circumstances. Right. But yeah, and and so what you're talking about here technically is really about the sensitivity of the chemicals on the film. How sensitive, how much light does it take to expose it and get the look that you want out of it? Yeah, exactly. Because with a slower film, you get a sharper image. And it's a major reason why the PGF was able to be blown up for close scrutiny of the details. Now, Kodachrome was the world's first successfully commercial color film, which Paul Simon sang about, and which was also used by Abraham Zapruder to film JFK's assassination, the world's first most scrutinized piece of footage. Unfortunately, due to the digital photography age, Kodak announced on June 22nd, 2009, that Kodachrome was going to be discontinued, which broke the hearts of a lot of old-time photographers because it was a much-beloved film stock very sharp, very good quality for what you got. That's why that eight millimeter and 16 millimeter film, color film can be projected and blown up. And even the slide film was excellent. So that disappointed a lot of film photographers. 
But the problem the skeptics see is that Kodachrome must be developed using the Kodak K12 process, which at that time was only available at licensed laboratories in certain major cities. Now, interestingly, the film is only black and white when first exposed, Kodachrome. Three complex development steps are required to mix the three primary colors that form the spectrum of color you end up seeing on the film. This is unlike any other color film which has its colors built into its layers. When Roger Patterson was asked about the film's processing, he replied, I had them done at a private place. It would jeopardize the man's job if it were told. Mm -hmm. Now, we can assume Roger didn't process the film himself and that his brother-in-law, Al Diatli, took the film to someone for processing, but sadly, and maybe a little suspiciously, Diatli claimed that he didn't remember, and still claims to this day, that he doesn't or didn't remember where he took the film for processing. And I mean, we've heard him interviewed, we've read interviews with him. He cannot recall a single detail, at least that's what he says, about how the film was processed or where it went. Yeah, so, or, or even where he picked it up when yeah. it was done or anything about it. He yeah. doesn't know anything. Right. So that's where I begin to have questions. Does he really not know anything? But mm. there was a lab in Seattle that could have processed the film. It was the Kodak Technicolor Laboratory, but it was closed on Saturday, October 21st, 1967, which is the day the film should have been processed mm -hmm. by the timeline. Now, author Chris Murphy, whose timeline of events we've been following here, speculates that Diatli may have arranged for an employee of the Seattle Film Lab to process the film on his own, off the record, while the lab was closed. Murphy further speculates that even if the lab was open, Diatli could have still arranged for special handling of the film, like for an employee to run it through off the books. Murphy also says that he was informed by professionals that the film could have been privately processed in a home laboratory, although the machinery needed might cost upwards of $60,000 or more. So this would be especially true if the employee with the home lab worked at a Kodak facility or had access to some of the components. Yeah, I also think it's a possibility that this off-the-books processing could have been done at a pirate facility of sorts, one that specializes in private processing, shall we say, questionable content, and that might be why Patterson and Diantley didn't feel like talking about it. Now keep in mind that whoever is processing the film can also see what's on it, and much more easily with color reversal film. And this is fascinating, too, because Diatli, as we've said, was a wealthy owner of a construction business. He could easily grease palms and, oh, get, sure, and sure. get things done. This is the kind of guy that, and you're going to find out as we talk more about him and his involvement in the aftermath of what happened with the film and how it was marketed to be shown to the public later, that there's no question that he is a somewhat opportunistic individual. And he may have been excited about the business prospects associated with this film. I'm sure. And so it would have been easy for him to say, hey, look, here's a hundred bucks. Here's a couple hundred bucks. Right. I need this process today and your boss doesn't have to know about it, open the door, let's get this done. You know, we were talking about this earlier. Look, Scott and I both have editing backgrounds in video and film, I mean, film transferred to video. But the idea is that, you know, where I worked, I had keys to the edit bay, and I often went in on the weekends to get work done that I, you know, couldn't finish during the week or just to get myself ahead. You know, and, and then there's other employees that would say, hey, could you edit my wedding video or just, you know, <laughs> cut some pieces together of it or make some copies? I have some VHSs here. Could you just like make some copies? You know, so it didn't cost the company anything. I was already there just my time. But, you know, it wasn't a sanctioned session. It was just other employees who wanted a favor of like, yeah, could you make this videotape copy? Here's the original and here's the tape stock. I want you to copy it to. And it's like, sure, that's not a problem. I just have it running in the background. 
So I don't know what it was like, of course, at the Kodak Technicolor Laboratory in Seattle, but if there's guys that have access to the lab and the equipment and they're in there working and it's off the books, kind of, like I said, maybe they're just getting some stuff done and Al knew about these people or somehow got told like, oh, you should talk to so-and-so over there. You know, he comes in on Saturday, maybe he could run that through for you that it wouldn't be that hard to do. My other theory on this is that, like I said, with the private pirate labs, is that there are films, of course, that aren't in the mainstream that have made the rounds, let's say, in certain genres, and those get processed somewhere, and it's not at Technicolor. Because, as I said before, you can see what's on the film. That doesn't mean that someone saw a ape creature out in the woods on Patterson's film, they may not have been paying attention, but you can easily see what's on them. You know, when I was in film school at USC, there was a lab... Doesn't that, USC call it cinema? I'm proper, studying the cinema. Would you want to call them t USC talkies? I like, know. What, I mean, I don't know. Here? Film. I think film would be a, a less snobby word oh, for geez. what I'm it's studying just, at USC. It's the proper... They all call it the cinema. school of cinema. It's the yeah. proper term for it. Rather okay. than, the, you know... Getting back to getting film processed, though, all those students of which I said there was no rich kids, at least going to cinema, that I knew of that had their own private labs. You had to take your film to a local place, which uh, anybody in the area or at the school will know who they were. They were kind of a mom-and-pop operation that processed, I believe, mostly Super 8, maybe some 16. I'm not sure if they had the sprockets for that, but it was the Super 8 cartridges that they just ran through hundreds and hundreds of those every week for processing the student's film. Now, I had a friend that she was doing a vampire-themed movie, and, you know, she had some costume, other students dressed up, and I think she filmed it in a graveyard, which she got permission to. It's all above board. But the owners of the lab were known for being very religious, and they saw what was on the film, and they took a marker, and they just striped it all the way through her whole film. They sent her a note saying, we do not approve of your devil-worshipping student film here, or something to that effect. She's like, what? No, it's a vampire film. I'm making you know, a horror movie. It's perfectly acceptable. So my point was that they see what was going through on the film, and if they didn't like it, yeah, they would return it to you defaced. Yeah. Which is their prerogative, I suppose. You'd be hard-pressed to kind of take them to court, but... Whoever did this, I'm wondering if they saw this and just saw, you know, like I said, the horseback footage is the first reel. We don't know if both reels were processed at the same time. That's another point of inspection. What exactly was processed that day? Because it wouldn't take that long, maybe an hour or two to run it through the machinery if it was, everything was warmed up, the chemicals are going and all that. Another thing that we had conjectured on with regard to the unsavory content was that there were places that obviously were processing, like you said, processing that kind of film. And it could be that Al Diotley found out how to get something processed at one of those places. So we decided to look into that a little bit about the possibility of stag films, which were in their waning days in the late 60s, but they were still around being maybe shot or processed in the Seattle area. And it turns out they were. We spoke with an expert, Dr. David Church, Ph.D. He's a lecturer and program coordinator of cinema studies at the Department of Comparative Cultural Studies at Northern Arizona University. He's a former Seattle resident, which is how I found him through online research about the possibility of these stag films or smoker pictures, they also called them, being produced in the Seattle area. And he said they definitely were, and it's entirely reasonable that they may have found a way to process this film there. However, he also said that the bulk of those films were actually shot 
on Super 8 or 8 millimeter, it would be unlikely that they were shot on 16. He indicated something pretty interesting to us when we talked to him on the phone, that it actually started out with a higher production value and devolved as time went on into less expensive and lower quality stuff. So he said, I can't imagine really that a 16 millimeter stag film would have been shot right. in the late 60s and therefore that begs the question would they have been able to process it now here's the thing i don't know about how the processing works in the machines i know with transferring film to video because i've done that with many hundreds of thousands of feet of film you have to have a different gate that's appropriate and the gate is the device that uh, carries the film through mm -hmm. past the scanning equipment whatever your scanner is so you have to have a different gate for 8 versus 16 i would imagine that if you were processing the eight chemically, you would need a different hardware setup, but it might be interchangeable to process 16. But the bulk of the machine that does the processing is probably stays the same. It's, you just need yeah. to change the gear that's actually running the film through the chemical baths. So yeah, the sprockets are the same or the gearing is the same. I have seen it done once. And what's really the same is the chemical process bath, because what you realize is that Super 8 Kodachrome 2, which they had, and 16, and the slide film, it's all the same film. It's just cut up differently. Right. So I believe the chemical baths are the same. It's just how it's run through. And again, these are all on long sprockets where the film is kind of running through slowly and it gets processed as it runs through these three separate baths, which uh, is, again, that's fascinating. It starts off as black and white film. Or, yeah, that was amazing. I didn't know that until you told me that during yeah. the course of this show. That's really fascinating. And, the, and it's, yeah, the colors are added chemically, whereas nowadays the colors are embedded within the film layers. And yeah, if I was, see. if uh, color film was still around now, of course, it's all digital process. If, but So our overall point is, it is our personal feeling, even though this is really speculative and we did a little bit of research on it and we talked to the one gentleman who had experience uh, and knowledge about the possibility of stag film production in Seattle and that sort of thing. This is all primarily very speculative and he would have said that as well. Dr. Church would have said that as well. Our point is that just because you can't necessarily nail down how this film was processed doesn't mean that the timeline for the film is impossible. Because the other thing that we found out is it only takes an hour to process it. So the idea of this timeline not being able to be verified doesn't make the entire film a hoax and again is irrelevant to the detailed analytical study of what's on the film. Before we move on, I just want to put that out there. Yeah, it points to whether or not Patterson already had this thing shot and staged, and this was a big setup to fool these other people closely involved, these other Bigfoot researchers, into thinking this was a spontaneous kind of thing. We got to move fast on this. This just happened Friday afternoon. We're coming back with some amazing footage. Let's get it processed Saturday. Let's set up a screening Sunday. So in regards to that, let's get back to that story. What was happening back at the Deatley house? Well, John Green was at Deatley's house having arrived around noon or the early afternoon on Sunday, October 22nd, waiting for Patterson to show up. Here's a little background on John Willison Green, who he actually just passed away in 2016 at the age of 89. He was a Canadian journalist and one of the big names in Bigfoot research from that generation. He'd compiled a database of more than 3,000 sightings and footprint reports. Sasquatch, the apes among us, regarded by the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, or BFRO, 
as the best written book on the subject. That was his book. Yeah, that was written by Green. Yeah. yeah. One of the classics. He got interested in Bigfoot research in 1957 when he met fellow Canadian René DeHinden, and they decided to collaborate in the research. A year later, in 1958, Green had seen a number of 15-inch Bigfoot tracks along a sandbar at Bluff Creek that were so deeply pressed into the soil that whatever made them was many times heavier than what a human being could make by themselves. Green went to investigate the rash of tracks in Bluff Creek that summer. And that's a really important point. I want to add something to that. It's not hard to fake a track. What it is hard to do is fake the amount of weight it takes to make the impression. Yes. Well, we're going to later talk about a famous hoaxer of tracks or self-proclaimed hoaxer of tracks that even his family, after he passed away, said, oh, yeah, he told us he hoaxed them all, I believe, by using giant wooden feet just (laughs) on either his own feet taped to his shoes or on stilts. But the idea is that he would have to have also pressed these into the soil so far that it resembled something that was four, five, six hundred pounds. Right. So he would have probably had to strap three or four hundred pounds onto his body in addition to putting the fake feet on. Right. And also, yeah, no, the other point is that this is also just a Northern California because if he was doing all of them, he traveled great distances from Northern California to Central California, I believe, and all the way through Washington State up into Canada. Just well, doing one hoax. Right. And that comes back to something that we've encountered before. It's like the two old guys with the wooden board who said <laughs> they made all the crop circles. Right. It's not possible for those guys to have done it. Yes, many crop circles are hoaxed. Yes, lots of different people are hoaxing them. But what happens, there's this thing that happens, and it's happened with this story as well, and you'll see as we continue to discuss this legend, is that one idea comes out and it's like, oh, yep, I did that. And then a huge portion of the population says, well, That's it. Mystery solved. Here's the thing. It it upsets people to think about it. So you want something that will allow you to stop thinking about it. Cognitive closure. And what it is, it's like, that's just one guy, right? Okay, we're done. There's no big giant apes out in the the woods when I have to take my family out there on a camping trip. I don't got to worry about it. We're safe, right? Because it's just one guy with big wooden feet. Yes. And he seems like he has a good (laughs) sense of humor. Yeah. So that doesn't hold up, but there is a direct connection we'll talk about later directly to Patterson having come across Ray Wallace's path, shall we say. This is Amanda Snyder. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, once Patterson arrived at Diatley's house, Diatley took him to the basement to show him the film by himself. And after that, it was shown to John Green. Now, that's got to be an exciting moment, right? Even if he thought it was a hoax, just seeing this thing. Yeah. Because again, to a lot of people, it does look schlocky, mostly to people who are special effects costumers for various reasons. But to a lot of people, even these scientists, it's compelling enough, even if they don't want to admit it. There's something about it that you just can't shake. And imagine seeing that for the first time. Now, Bob Gimlin wasn't at the house that day as he was home resting from that very strenuous drive back to Yakima. To refresh your memory about how brutal this drive was, the road was washed out. The truck got stuck with horses in the back of it. They had to hotwire a a front end loader Mm -hmm. or some kind of heavy equipment to rescue the truck. It was crazy. And we've seen Bob speak about this. And he talks about, I wouldn't wish that day on my worst enemy. He said something (laughs) to that effect. And I would like to make a continued point here that if you're hoaxing something, why would you go to a location that is that difficult to get in and out of for the hoax? 
Just a question yeah. to put down on your notepad. Well, the other one was that maybe Patterson, if it was shot earlier, maybe he didn't go all the way to Northern California. Maybe he shot it near Yakima. And all I can tell you about that before I forget, because I want to make a point about that, at least in the surrounding vicinity of Yakima, it does not look anything like the terrain we see in the film, which looks a lot more like Northern California. Additionally, we will later be discussing verification methods for the location that was shot in the film. Oh, very good. I'm glad you have that on board. Well, around 3 p.m. that Sunday, DeHinden and McLaren showed up to the house, and then Patterson showed the film to everyone present, but just the portion with Panny in it, not the first 76 feet of scenic horseback footage or the second roll of film of the tracks being casted. If he had that process by then as well... The researchers there were impressed by the clip, and there didn't seem to be any feeling that Patterson and Gimlin were trying to hoax anything. So I don't know if that was their emotional exuberance about it, but apparently they were on board with what they just saw. We've seen numerous accounts that suggest how excited and sort of crazed Roger seemed about it, and yeah. uh, that it seemed to be very genuine emotion as opposed to trying to convince people of something that might not be true. Well, that was noticed by the first newspaper reporter that Patterson talked to, because the day before on Saturday, while Patterson and Gimlin were driving back home from Bluff Creek, the first news story about the encounter appears in an area newspaper, the Times Standard, as a front-page story titled, Mrs. Bigfoot is Filmed. Now, the Times Standard billed itself at the time as a daily newspaper for northwestern California and southern Oregon. Remember that Patterson had telephoned a reporter for the Times Standard around 9.30 p.m. on Friday night after the incident, so they ran with it on the front page of the next day. Now, here are some highlights we're going to go over from that newspaper article. Again, we think it's important because it's really the first time it appears in print and media. The article starts off calling Bob Gimlin Patterson's Indian tracking aide, which, well, Bobby is a quarter Apache, but and he does know a lot about tracking. But yeah. you can see the Times reflected there in yeah. the newspaper article. The article goes on to say that Patterson was very excited to, quote, breathlessly report, end quote. And a quote from Roger apparently was, a giant hominoid creature is what they saw. The article says Patterson has eight years at that time researching Bigfoot, and he was 34 at that time. So kind of a young man there. He'd been all over the Northwestern U.S. and Canada working on his documentary project, and he had over 50 tapes of interviews with persons who've reported findings and interviews with two or three persons who have reported seeing them in person. And it sounds like you get some of those if you joined his abominable Snowman Club of America, <laughs> where if you joined for the reasonable price of $5.95 at the time, you get two years membership, an 8 by 10 inch membership certificate signed by the author, and also two great 12-inch long-playing record albums with over one hour of actual recorded story interviews. Man, I wish we could get a hold of those. Yeah, those are the records we talked about that I yeah. I was looking for. By the way, if anyone out there has anything from this club, we would love to see and or hear it because it is Nowheresville online and they got to be out there. It's so in someone's uh, milk crate in a garage somewhere in an attic, you know, yeah. so just sitting there collecting dust. It's got to be out there, I would imagine. Just a priceless classic nowadays. Yeah, and some of the stuff that they had on the records, they had uh, the report of Jenkins' encounter with California's Bigfoot, Fred Beck's attack in Ape Canyon, which we talked about a little bit, mm -hmm. William Rowe's hunting accident with the, quote, human-looking female Sasquatch. Oh, you know what? That's also another point that skeptics say. With that female Sasquatch, that's where Patterson got the idea for to the make breasts. Pat a patty. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. to make Pat a patty. So... 
also Albert Osman's personal story yeah. of how he was kidnapped by the Sasquatch of British Columbia and lived six days with them before escaping. Uh, and you can turn to our archives for a much more detailed telling of that story as well. Although we don't have Albert Osman because he was dead and gone <laughs> when we did it. But I don't uh, know if it's him. On, it might be him on the album telling the story or Roger. I'm, not, that I'm part pretty sure clear. he actually interviewed him. I know, oh, I know that Osman yeah. was recorded. Right. It's pretty fascinating. So those records are only available through the offer in his book. Sound interesting? You bet your bottom dollar it is, <laughs> wrote Patterson in the ad in the back of his book. Again, it's such a fun book. It has the feel of like, remember the stuff in the back of the comic books, which yes. was such fun and Yes, not the sturdiest of products, but you got something. X-ray glasses. Yeah, you get something for your money there. But anyway, that was him trying to drum up interest in furthering these expeditions and interviews. And people might say he was trying to make a buck off of it, but it wasn't a lot of bucks. Yeah. It didn't add up to a whole lot. He seemed to have a genuine passion for the topic. Yes. And, you know, if he can make a little money and, and do this hobby, it's fine, too. He's, you know, he does. Everybody needs to pay their rent and, and, and feed their family. So, you know, your endeavor has to at least return something unless you're just independently wealthy. Well, back to the Times Standard article. It says that Bob Gimlin was 36 at the time, so they're close in age, and as we said, a quarter Apache, and it says that he's been associated with Patterson for a year, at least at the time of this endeavor. Now, it said Patterson had visited the area before, and I ask you, would you admit it if you were trying to hoax it that, like, yeah, I'd been there before, or would it be better to say, like, I've never been there before in my life, I couldn't have staged anything? Yeah. No, so I'm not trying to paint it one way or the other. It's just, yes, we're trying to, yeah, maybe that. Uh, I mean, we definitely have confirmation bias at this point, but yeah. I, I just want to quickly interject here about right. that. When we went into this, I thought the film was a hoax. And I no longer think that. I'm just going to say it now. I mean, well, you're I'm spilling gonna, the beans now? No, I'm going to oh, get more specific okay. in the conclusions, but <laughs> I want people to understand that we did not start, or at least I didn't start right, this, right. this particular series with the idea that this film was real. I just want to make that clear. Okay. You know, my goal for this is really not to persuade you. It's for you, the listener, to consider everything without throwing it out beforehand and making prejudgments about it. We certainly have our opinions, but I just want everybody to just consider everything. Consider all the possibilities and hear this case out and all the details. Then make your mind up at the end and set aside any preconceived notions you may have had even if you'd heard about this as a kid or, or just now about what this film is, just approach this topic with an open mind and open eyes and see what happens later. See where you land. So Patterson, I just wanted to point out, though, was being fairly open about what experience he'd had, at least with the area at the time, because that's another point of criticism that he had gone there and staged it. He knew the area well, so it was familiar and an easy place to stage something. But really, if you believe him, Patterson, it was last month that he received word of the latest findings there. And that's why he wanted to go to the area, because he thought it was a good chance of finding some fresh tracks. At least those were the reports he'd been hearing. And it says that Bluff Creek is 65 to 70 miles north of Willow Creek, where it joins Notice Creek. So that, that lines up with what we'd found out. And two miles into a canyon where it begins to flare out. And that's the flat spot there where the creek is, where the sighting happened. And the reporter for the article said that Patterson was still an excited man some eight hours after his experience. Quote, his words came cascading out between gasps. He still couldn't believe what he had seen, but he is convinced he has now seen a Bigfoot himself. And he's the only man he's heard of who has taken pictures of the creature. End quote. The article goes on to say what Patterson reported. 
It was about 1.30 with good daylight and riding over a sandbar where they'd been two days before. Patterson says, quote, I guess we both saw it at the same time, end quote. Patterson yelled, Bob, look it. And at least in this article, Patterson says this, quote, giant humanoid creature, end quote, stood up and was about 80 to 90 feet in front of them. Now, if that creek was a pool of water, nowadays they could have possibly gotten a DNA sample from it, as I saw Dr. Mark Evans and his team do in that Yeti documentary. Yeah, did you see that? I, uh, I think I was over here when I watched it. It's amazing what they can do now. They were doing an expedition with Dr. Mark Evans up in the Himalayas, and they had a French biologist with them on the team, and she said that, you know, if you just get water where this thing, look, every creature has to drink eventually. And if it had been drinking or bathing or just walking around in the water, they could take a sample of that water, they put it through a strainer, and they could filter out DNA from that. And there are some very interesting conclusions that they reached. Yes. and Unexpected, I would say. And that makes the additional point that it's another reason that it makes sense for this creature to be in the creek. It's by the water. All these animals need water. That's where you find everything. Everyone knows that who's seen any Disney film. There's always the watering hole scene. <laughs> that's where you got to go. Yeah, you, you get grabbed by a croc, but everybody's got to go there. Yeah, like, and yeah. that's even to the point where you if you, you might be in danger, but you have to have the water. So it's another reason that you might have seen this creature in a creek bed. That's where right. every animal's got to get to sooner or later. Exactly. So Patterson's horse actually reared up and fell over, and it fell down so hard it actually flattened out the stirrup that he had his right foot in. The horse's weight came down on it. And uh, he actually kept the stirrup. His foot hurt pretty bad, but he couldn't think about it because he had to jump up and get his leg out from under there and grab the reins of the horse to try and control it. And he couldn't. So he grabbed the movie camera out of the left saddlebag and then he let go of the horse, at which point the horse ran off pointedly with his rifle. Gimlin was seated on an older horse which probably shouldn't have spooked, but it did, and he let it go. But That's it, another point of contention, too. People were saying his horse never spooked. I think the person that loaned him the horse... Bob Hieronymus. Bob Hieronymus said, uh, no, no, that horse shouldn't have spooked. It's older, it's trail-worthy, but he wasn't there. He wasn't there, and how do you know what a horse is going to do if you <laughs> purportedly is, yeah. yeah, in front of a 800-pound, uh, super-tall, hairy creature? Or an 800-pound man in a ape suit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Again, I think this article is significant to note because it's really an accounting of Patterson's first recollections. And it's an important note to consider because this is the freshest recollection of what he saw with his eyes. And consider that that visual would be much clearer and sharper than what we can now perceive from watching the film. Here's my point. I'm looking at you across from the table. You are in really high def. Yeah. (laughs) With my eyes. If I had, let's say, an 8-millimeter camera or Super 8, you know, at the time, and I was looking at a film of you where I am now, of course that image would be much less clear. And if I was 50 feet away, if I was 80 feet away, and I had to blow that up, it'd be very grainy. I could still see you and recognize you. My point is that imagine actually seeing it with your eyes and just that image burned into your memory if it was real. Or if Bob Gimlin wasn't in on it and didn't know what was happening, what he saw and had burned it, it was like, oh my gosh, what is that? You know, so this retelling is really fresh at this point, essentially immediately after it happened. Yeah. And in this report, he said, Patterson said that it was six and a half to seven feet tall between 350 to 400 pounds. And he later increased these estimates, which he's been criticized for. Yeah. But consider he was in a very excited state and still processing the information. Now, his gun was still in the scabbard, but, quote, they'd made a pact not to kill one if we saw, unless we had to, 
end quote. At the time, Bob Gimlin actually doubted the existence of Sasquatch-like creatures. However, he agreed to Patterson's insistence that they should not attempt to shoot one. Patterson said the creature's head was much like a human's, though considerably more slanted with a large forehead and broad, wide nostrils. Yeah, not a pointed nose or one that stuck out. Kind of a very flat, smallish nose, but wide. But wide, which is how you would describe a gorilla's nose, really. Yeah. He said, quote, its arms hung almost to its knees, and when it walked, the arms swung at its sides. And then that look that we all know now, mm -hmm. and everyone who's seen that film, you can't forget it. Now, Patterson states he's very much certain the creature was female, quote, because when it turned towards us for a moment, I could see its breasts hanging down and they flopped when it moved, end quote. He said the creature had what he thought looked like silvery brown hair all over its body, except on its face around the nose and cheeks. The hair was two to four inches long and of a light tint on top with a deeper color underneath. Rogers quoted as saying, she never made a sound. She wasn't hostile to us, but we don't think she was afraid of us either. She acted like she didn't want anything to do with us if she could avoid it. He said he had her in sight for about 200 yards before losing her in the trees, but Bob Gimlin caught a brief glimpse of her after Roger lost sight. Now, here's a fun fact that we'd not yet heard described, her odor. Mm. Patterson says, quote, but she stunk. Like, did you ever let in a dog out of the rain and he smelled like he'd been rolling in something dead? Her odor didn't last long where she'd been. What does this remind you of? <laughs> Skunk ape. Well, yeah. there, there you go, Christopher Hamill. Hope you're happy. I don't know <laughs> if he's still listening. I don't he, know. This guy has been pursuing us for years online to do a skunk ape episode. And I think, I don't know if he finally gave up and quit yeah. listening. I haven't right. seen a post in a while. <laughs> right. Well, I know he wanted the Florida one. That's where the, the skunk the, ape the, is, the, right? The, Florida. The, well, that's the official one there. But how about just an ape that's kind of skunky? Yeah. <laughs> they, well, that's a common trait that's often described, which this is another point of contention tension in that people will say like, well, you're so far away, how could you smell her? But I've come across some people just in the car with the window rolled down. And, and let me tell you, I could smell them from like 20, 30 feet away. Well, and I think it's also an interesting point that the odor didn't hang around. And that matches what your experience is. A lot of times, like if you have a stinky dog, a dog that's yeah, been out in the right. rain or whatever, right. it's they smell really bad, but when they leave, it doesn't linger. Yeah. Unlike rotting corpse or something like that, which is that's a pervasive smell that sticks around even after you remove the offending dead creature. Right. This is a different kind of thing. It's really pungent, but it's also it also doesn't have hang time. Well, that also depends on who you believe. If you think it's a costume, who made the costume? Because if it was rented, you've just kind of ruined it. And now you're not getting your deposit back. Well, where's the smell coming I, from? That's true. Yeah. If, again, you believe Patterson and that description is true. Well, the article concludes by saying Patterson and Gimlin were anxious to return to their campsite and horses right in the middle of the primitive area to hopefully get another shot at filming the creature. And he'd been to Eureka, California on Friday afternoon to airmail his film to partner Al Diatley, who has helped finance his expeditions. He thought that there might be a family of these creatures in the area because footprints of 17, 15, and 9 inches have been reported found. Now, those were all found together by the construction equipment a few weeks earlier, right? That's what Roger's wife had told him about. Well, the road crew that had discovered a various set of prints in different sizes, I believe, and that's the one that got accidentally cleaned over, graded over before a representative from the British Columbia Museum could make it down there to study them. So prints have been found. So someone, if they were hoaxing it, had been laying down tracks, not in 1958, but recently, then. Or and, a Bigfoot family. Yeah, and, and different and this, sizes. And yeah. when you think about this, if this is a real experience for Roger and Bob, then put yourself there. What's the first thing you're thinking when you see the big one? 
is where are the other two? Yeah, exactly. And, and also, it's a mom. What do moms do when you get near their kids? Well, especially Mother Grizzly, sure. Yeah. You, you see two cubs, you you got to back out of there quickly because she's going to be around and, and angry. Well, that's funny because the newspaper reporter joked to him that it sounded like the three bears, to which Patterson replied, this was no bear. We have seen a lot of bears in our travels. We have seen some bears on this trip. This was definitely no bear. And then the end of the article has Patterson saying that he was also anxious to contact a museum administrator who could maybe bring down dogs. So that sounds like he's talking about archaeologist Don Abbott from British Columbia. All right. Just talking about. Again, Roger Patterson wanting to bring dogs down to chase the scent of this creature. If this creature is a person in a costume, does that seem like something you would request? If you're doing a hoax. Well, the supporters of Patterson and the proponents of there being a Bigfoot would say he is doing whatever he can to get professionals and people who know what they're talking about when it comes to this down there in the area on the ground looking at the evidence that possibly he hoaxed. And why would you do that or why would you be anxious to do that? If you had hoaxed it, and these people would more readily tell that you'd been hoaxing it. These aren't just newspaper reporters who would take pictures and report on it to get yourself famous. These are people who know what animal prints, especially primates, should look like. And here's the thing about the dogs. You bring tracking dogs in, what they're going to do if they pick up on the scent and it's human and it's a guy in a costume, they're going to track it where they filmed it. Then they're going to track it coming back down to the creek, coming right back around to where they all were, getting on a horse and riding back to wherever the car or the campsite was. Mm -hmm. That's what they're going to track. So just that for me, that's one of those deal breaker ideas about a hoax. To think that Roger Patterson wouldn't know what a tracking dog can do. Because a tracking dog, I've seen these dogs on TV just in the past year or two. I saw a bloodhound track a guy who got in a car and got on the freeway and then <laughs> well, got off the off-ramp yeah. and walked into a field. It tracked him to the off-ramp and to the field. Wow. And they know these are cowboys. They know mm -hmm. what these dogs can do. Right. You're going to call these dogs in on a hoax. It doesn't make sense. Well, it might be seen as a more foolish thing if you're hoaxing it to invite more experts in to look at it. Or you could say it's a con man thing. It's getting the experts almost to the edge to yes. show that confidence. Like, hey, you want to look at this room full of our servers? What was that? That was the grifters. <laughs> That's right. Which like, we just referenced like two episodes ago. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's a good point, but he was an expert grifter. Of course, he's a fictional character, right. but that's like, you're a high-level con person well, if you're that, going yeah. that far, because if he says, let's get dogs in here, and he legit requested that gentleman bring the dogs down, mm -hmm. that request went through. He wasn't just telling a reporter about it, and the guy didn't make it, but he did request someone to bring dogs. So that's going pretty far for a con. You're a pretty high-level yeah. flim-flammer there if you've got so much confidence that you're inviting tracking dogs into the scene. Yeah, well, either he's a good actor, Roger Patterson, or he's genuinely excited. You know, so take your pick. So tell us all about what happened after the article came out on Saturday. Well, it was read by Lyle Laverty and his team. Now, Laverty was the timber management assistant for the U.S. Forest Service at the time. Laverty would later go on to serve as an assistant secretary of the interior under President George W. Bush. So that's Bush 41. Lyle Laverty recalls that he and his team of three guys had passed by the siding area in a Jeep, either on the 19th of October, the Thursday before the siding, or sometime on the 20th, the actual day of the siding, and they hadn't noticed any footprints. After reading the article over the weekend, on Monday the 23rd, he and his team returned to the site and were able to take six photos of the footprints, according to the Wikipedia entry. The three photos of the tracks 
that appear in Chris Murphy's addendum to Roger Patterson's book have a caption reading that those three photos shown were taken the day after the sighting on October 21st. In any case, the prints in the sandy clay soil are pretty good and crisp, and in one photo, Laverty had laid a U.S. quarter next to the big toe for a size context, banana for scale, and the big mm. toe, in comparison, looks about as big as a Snapple lid or bigger. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a big a racquetball size. Yeah. yeah. So it's a large toe. Now, even though the creature is always described as ape-like, the feet are nothing like ape or gorilla feet at all. They're pretty much human-looking footprints. So, you know, the gorilla foot, I was actually looking at mm -hmm. these forests. I didn't tell you this a mm -hmm. couple days ago. When, when you look up a gorilla's foot, it has that opposable thumb, essentially. Yes, you always, right. Very different looking yeah, foot. Yeah, you see the digit that sticks way out. Yeah. So this makes you wonder, if these are all fake, was it the first hoaxer decision to go with human footprints rather than that of a gorilla's feet? Would it be a better hoax in trying to be accurate to be the feet of an ape? No, I always thought about that. It's like if you're trying to show that there's some giant hairy ape creature out there, it's easy to go find out what an ape's feet look like. I just, don't you wonder, like... I do, if, but you if, know, I have a different position. No, I'd always wondered about that. Who was the first person that made footprints if they're all fake? And what was their choice to go with? You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm going to go with really big human feet because that's just such a crazy idea. It's going to stir up a lot of talk. Or to me, it sounds like the footprints and the hoaxing came after people were reporting, Native Americans reporting. And some really early pioneers had thought that these prints, in certain instances, were of a giant, as they said, renegade Indian, a wild man living out in the woods who was not ape-like, but just... A giant man, there's one account that we didn't read that was kind of crazy, but, you know, some guy who was massive and feral, and he ended up killing a couple of people, so they went after him, and actually, I think they actually shot him in an attack, and he had feet that were like 15 inches long. Something unbelievable, but yeah. a real per he's a real person, he's not an ape, and that was some of the early thinking that who was making these prints so you just wonder, though, is it the first hoaxer that thought of like, well, I'm going to do human footprints rather than I'm going to do some kind of weird ape-like creature. Then people will think there's a gorilla out in the woods where it shouldn't be. Well, it's a good question. I mean, the other thing is, if they're not a hoax, then it begs the question, what is this thing? And clearly it would have to be based on the footprints if some of the footprints are real or any of them, because right. there are no ape-like ones that I know of that have been cast. No, not really. If they are real and then Bigfoot is real then this creature, whatever it is, is more human than ape. Well, that is the interesting thing to think about if you consider Bigfoot being a real thing, a real cryptid. Is it more human than ape or more ape than human? Obviously, it's an animal. But the comparison is, I think, what is tripping people up. Them thinking that it's more human than ape-like, because if everything about it was gorilla-like, and it was just out in the woods. It's like, well, I guess there's a species of ape that has survived. Actually, there is a collection of guys who do believe that it is just a type of ape. That's all it is. And it just managed to survive in North America. And it's very good at hiding. And that's all it is. We shouldn't fear it or think it's some weird cryptid. It's just an animal. It's an ape. But this case here, what freaks people out is that it does seem more human, that some people have reported it has speech that it has some human characteristics, especially with family and organization and the way it communicates is different than a gorilla. 
And that's what's freaking people out. Well, when it comes to these tracks, this is where we get the taxidermist Robert Titmus comes into the scene. He's an avid outdoorsman and a Bigfoot researcher. And his sister and brother-in-law, along with him, went to go check out the event site nine days later, at which point he made plaster casts of at least 10 more footprints and mapped out the movements of Patterson and Patty. Now, John Green, in 1978, in his book, from pages 119 to 23, writes, quoting Titmus, Aline was a skeptic, and Harry a hard-headed non-believer. Both of them left there believing. Harry has hunted big game all of his life, end quote. Yeah, Aileen was his sister, and Harry was his brother-in-law. Yeah, and so if he's hunting big game, he obviously has experience with tracks and understanding uh, what he's looking at when he's looking at a track. Right. So. Well, Robert Titmus has inserted himself into this story now, and he becomes one of the players from here on out. Chris Murphy, the author who we've been referencing as having re-released Roger Patterson's book with the additional 80 pages of updated information, wrote that the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot sightings were quite unique for three main reasons. One, there were two witnesses to the event, so their stories could be cross-checked. Two, Patterson took movie footage of the creature so that the film could be analyzed. And three, Patterson and Gimlin had made plaster casts of the creature's footprints to add as evidence and confirm the sighting. Additionally, many of these footprints at the site remained intact afterwards so that researchers who came later were able to see, photograph, and make their own plaster casts of the footprints. There you have it. And this is something that I would say about the footprints when you're making fake footprints. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, wherever they start, you probably would have to start on a harder surface or something because you've got to be putting the costume on. There's people with you. And then at some point, you've got to vanish or mm. walk somewhere where you can no longer be tracked so you can remove the costume and return to the comfort of your tent, truck, or horse. <laughs> There's a staging so, area. Yeah, the staging area. I see. So okay. It's just something to consider with all these other researchers going out there and looking for the tracks. Oh, yes, I see and what you're tracking. saying. Yeah, they, of they probably would have stumbled across evidence prior to the start of the footprints or after they lose them in the woods that would indicate that there was more than one person there or somebody was there with a different kind of footprint. Yeah, I see what you're saying here is think of how many steps you take in your bedroom, putting your socks on and your pants. Yeah. Stepping around, stepping all over the place. If you were just a Bigfoot or if you had these big wooden feet, you have to stage them and start somewhere and end somewhere and disappear somewhere. Exactly. Again, people would say it's just a very clever hoax. What he did, he had it all planned out and mapped out, but the evidence was still there. So he left some things behind, if it was a hoax, to cement the idea that it was real to other researchers who would show up later. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Aaron Lillis. Now back to the show. So now that the film has been seen by this small group of supporters, you could say, Bigfoot researchers, and by Diatli and Gimlin, and remember, this is film, you don't look at it right away on the camera. You know, it has to be processed first and screened and projected. Which, by the way, means that after they shot it that day, they had no idea what they had captured and if they'd even gotten anything at all. Yeah, that's another thing to point to when the film was developed and if it was a hoax, how do you know what you got? Do you stick around? And that's what they were waiting to find out. So it did look like they got something pretty good. Well, how does that piece of film now then get presented to the authorities, the scientific community, which is now what we're going to talk about? Well, to that regard, 
Renee DeHinden and John Green thought that generally people in British Columbia, Canada were much more familiar and comfortable with the idea of Bigfoot or Sasquatch, as it's known more commonly up there, and they thought that Patterson's film would be better received by the scientific community up there, so they convinced him that that's where he should have a screening. And Don Abbott also talked to Patterson over the phone and told him a screening there would get good scientific representation. Just quickly, I think we should remind our listeners who all the players are here. I did, yes. I did want to say that Al Diatley is Roger Patterson's brother-in-law. He is married to Roger's sister, youngest sister, I believe, whose name is Iva. And he's the one that had the construction company and a good deal of money and supposedly threw some cash to Roger when he needed it to help get his expeditions done. Roger being portrayed as a bit of a schemer, uh, trying uh -huh. to get out there and, and make his films and do his things. As, a, he's hustling, he's, as the he's kids would say nowadays, which is very much admired yes. to hustle. Not so much back then, but nowadays, yeah, he's trying to get something going here, get some movement going on this because he knows he thinks that he has something special. Yes, and Renee DeHinden and John Green are both prominent researchers, and Don Abbott is the archaeologist, right? Yes, from the University of British Columbia. Who he had asked to bring the dogs down. Yeah, that's who these people are. I know how I just you hate to characters and names. I know No, that, but we're no, talking I, about 20 names yes. here. Everybody's like, who, what? Yeah, there's I no just, Henry Loftus. Don't yeah. trust me. They don't come up. That family tree does not come up. I know there's a, a few names here, but really this group gets pared down into several key players of which there are probably under eight or nine. You know yes. what I'm saying? It's, it gets pared down to these are the main actors now from here on out. Don Abbott had reached out to newspapers in Vancouver and Victoria, British Columbia, and told them about the film on Monday, October 23rd. Once Patterson and Gimlin arrived in Vancouver, they were interviewed on Jack Webster's radio show. Now, it may have been with Gimlin alone, but a portion of that interview was recorded by John Green and appears in Lauren Coleman's book, Bigfoot. Lauren, we love him, friend of the show. Yeah, check out his books too. Of course, he's written fairly extensively on the Bigfoot phenomenon. Yeah, he actually knew Ivan T. Sanderson personally. No, he's a major contributor to the field of cryptozoology, but I believe he'd be the generation after these guys, but yes. certainly very close to them and, and knew a lot of the people and I believe spoke to them when they were still alive, as we just seen John Green passed away not too long ago. Well, a screening was planned for the scientific community there on October 26th. We're mentioning all these dates, so you can get a sense that this was all moving very quickly when, yes. we, when we said this before. This is just a few days after the incident. Yeah, exactly. And again, the year is 1967. Right. So that's why I thought it was important for us to keep track of these days here, because if you think this film is real, it's all moving very fast to get that information out there as quick as possible. If you think it's a hoax that it's all been orchestrated to happen very quickly, or just the momentum is picking up very quickly here. But whatever's happening between Friday afternoon and now Sunday and Monday and Tuesday, it's starting to build up awareness that this film is out there. This is what's been captured. Let's get some real scientists to look at it. So a screening of both roles of film took place at the University of British Columbia with Dr. Ian McTaggart-Cowan, directing the event. In attendance were representatives from the Provincial Museum, a few scientists, Patterson and Gimlin, Renee DeHinden, John Green, David Hancock, and Bob Titmus. And another screening for the press was held later that day at the Georgia Hotel. 
And Bob, again, was the gentleman who took the plaster casts, the uh, Bigfoot researcher who went up there a few nine days later to take the casts. Yeah, as we said, Bob Gimlin did a clever thing by covering up some of the tracks with bark so they be preserved. Yes. Figure that into your caper story here about how that was handled and what you would do if you were or were not hoaxing. There doesn't appear to be an official account of what went down at the screening, you know, what was said. But John Green took a few notes and broke down the various reactions and initial opinions by the scientists there. And by his account and thinking, they raised three negative criticisms that continue to persist to this day. Green actually said that the first two of these three are totally wrong, and the third is questionable. Here's the first one. It is that the creature walks like a man, but has female breasts. But Green states that since human infants have very large heads compared to other apes, human females have wider pelvises to accommodate the birth. Therefore, they are the only higher primate that has a walk different from a male. If the creature had walked more like a gorilla or ape and not like a man, it would be more of a sign that it was hoaxed. Yeah, I believe that Grover Krantz is the one who purported these findings much later on, which Green is then adapting to. The second criticism is that the creature appears to have a sagittal crest, which is only seen in male gorillas. Now, a sagittal crest is a ridge of bone that runs from the top of the forehead along the midline sagittal suture to the back of the skull and is a sign that there are powerful temporalis jaw muscles attached to that ridge of bone necessary for powerful biting and chewing. They appear in mammalian skulls like lions, dogs, cats, adult male gorillas, and orangutans, and also in reptile skulls and some dinosaur species like tyrannosaurs. The earliest known robust hominid ancestor in our human lineage, known as Black Skull. Well, that's a great another pirate name, isn't it? Yeah, Black yeah, Skull. Black Skull. Or Paranthropus aethiopicus had the largest sagittal crest ever discovered. Now, looking at black skulls reminds me of a conquistador helmet. Yeah, doesn't it? It's got that yeah. ridge. If Just so you could picture it, it's got, you know, the old Spanish conquistadors. They had that ridge at the top of their helmet put in there for structural soundness and strength. Yes. Now, Green contends that a sagittal crest is related to size, not sex. And this creature, Patty, is larger than a male gorilla. If it didn't have a sagittal crest, it would be more of an indication of a hoax. Yeah, to point out, I think where John Green is getting this are from the observations of Grover Krantz, who got a lot of heat for his belief eventually in Sasquatch as being a possibility. You know, he's the noted primatologist and anthropologist, and so he knows what he's talking about. He's no slouch, but he did get a lot of flack for even considering this stuff. He also had Irish wolfhounds that he loved, and he was <laughs> a very right. big man, and he gave his body to science along with the wolfhounds, and you can see a picture if you look online, and probably I'm not sure where exactly it's located, but you can see his skeleton with the Irish wolfhound up on its back legs, its skeleton, giving him an affectionate hug. So yeah, it's, very, it's, it's, it's cool cute. guy. That's a cool guy. That it is. <laughs> he, he loves his dogs. It's cute and creepy at the same time. The third criticism is no higher primate has breasts that are covered in hair. But even though they live only in hotter climates, female apes do have some hair on their breasts. And it's reasonable to assume that a creature climatized to colder weather could have much more. Green goes on to note that none of the scientists present were primatologists or physical anthropologists, and that their comments were made after only a brief screening with no time to do any further research or thinking about it. So it keep that in mind, they're yeah. looking at it once on right. a projector, absorbing everything that it represents and making a bunch of calls right there. 
Yeah, so it's a, an initial Once. reaction by people who are going to be naturally skeptical to begin with and by their training should be. But that was just off the top of their heads, these three objections that popped up. So to be fair, what John Green is saying is that you can't bag on them too much for that one showing, which is just once. I don't believe there were any still frames and they didn't ask for a repeat showing, which is pretty common among the scientists, as we'll see as they get into these various screenings of theirs. That's just the first thing that pops up. So John Green does have a problem with people who still bring up those arguments because he feels that those have been batted down. By the end of 1967, they had a total of seven scientific screenings, with one later in Beaverton, Oregon. So that was how Patty became known to the scientific community, at least the very few, the very, very, very few who would even bother to look, sadly. Well, to our point, sadly, I can understand why most of them would say, like, I'm not going to bother with that. I'm not going to dignify that with a viewing. Well, it's kind of like, hey, we found a, a silicanth. Oh, no, really? That's been uh, extinct for millions of years. I'm not even looking at that. Yeah. Or it's that guy who said to the Beatles, rock and roll's on the way out. Um, we're not signing you. <laughs> right. Anyway. That was Ivan T. Sanderson's position, too, that you shouldn't be too quick to judge because we say this a lot and then they find one eventually. And there's several instances of animals and lineages long thought lost, but have popped up later on. Well, speaking of nature and nature films, you know, back in the 70s, there were a lot of nature films that were distributed by a grassroots, sometimes one-person distribution method called four-walling. This is where the filmmaker or whoever was exhibiting the film would take it town to town for local screenings. Do you remember Warren Miller's skiing films? Oh, yeah. Remember that? Of course. That's what he did. He got very, very successful off doing just that, where he would just book a theater and take it, and it would get announced to local skiing communities, and people would get excited about that. But that's what he was doing. And uh, remember the surfing film, Endless Summer? Oh, yes. I believe that was also four-walled, or that's how that became kind of a cult hit. Also one of the greatest movie posters of all time. <laughs> yeah, so that was a technique that people were doing when you couldn't rely on major distribution from the studios or the distribution companies. Oh, you remember the fun family movies of Sun Classic films in the 70s? You may be a little young for that. That's not something I'm familiar with. I just, well, people don't, probably don't know the name, but I did because they had a lot of kind of fringy films at the time, what we would call indie now, and that's what they did. And they had a lot of paranormal themes, actually, that I remember seeing or getting excited about as a kid, but you had to go to the theater or I don't think drive-in, but you had to go to a theater and a special viewing. Well, in the mid-70s, they four-walled a documentary called Mysterious Monsters about Bigfoot, and this included clips from the PGF, and it was also about the Loch Ness Monster. And this film had aired on CBS and was co-produced by the Smithsonian Institution and was quite popular at the time. Now, with four-walling, what the filmmaker did themselves, or they had a group of people, a small group, basically, like I said, it's just a small group of people that would be doing this with indie distribution were their own little company there and what they would do is take out ads in the local newspaper and run ads on local tv stations and then they would rent a theater for a few nights and then show the movie themselves with their own print and keep the box office sales well that's what roger patterson did with a docudrama that had his patty footage in it patterson had agreed to let the bbc use his footage in a docudrama they were going to produce if they agreed to let him include his own footage of his own documentary that he was working on, including some other footage shot by him and Deatley, and then take that film, that compilation there, on a theater tour of the Pacific Northwest 
and the Midwest. Now, Al Diatli, again, that's Roger's brother-in-law, married Mm -hmm. to Roger's sister, had estimated that his half of the gross profits from the screenings grossed around $75,000. But some people with inside knowledge, like a gentleman named Glenn Kelling, stated that Diatli made a whole lot more than that off the screenings and was told by Patterson and others that he didn't get his fair share of it. Yeah, Glenn Coling or Kelling, he was an insider, I believe also a Bigfoot researcher and author on the subject, had talked to people that were close to Roger and Roger himself, and that was kind of the vibe that there was some money being made, but Roger wasn't seeing all that he should of it. Author Michael McLeod claimed that Diatley admitted to making several hundred thousand dollars from the film, but that whatever was left over for Roger, quote, wasn't near enough, end quote. Here's the thing about Diatley, and this comes from Greg Long's book, which I just want to make sure I cite properly here. Yeah, that previous fact there was also in Greg Long's book that Roger was not getting his fair share. This book is called The Making of Bigfoot, The Inside Story. It's by Greg Long, and uh, you can find it anywhere online. It's pretty easy to find. It was published in 2004 by Prometheus Books. Considered kind of the holy grail, I think, for the skeptics. For for the skeptical uh, side of the film being a hoax. We want to make clear, not on the so much scientific end of it, but the character end of it yes. and the social aspect of the whole you know, incident. That's right. It's not very analytical of the film itself, the actual film and what was recorded, although it is in spots. There's not really a, a strong scientific approach on that part of it, but what there are is an extensive series of interviews. Oh, yeah. Now, I have a personal opinion about the nature of the interviews. I think some of them are a little bit The questioning and the approach is a little bit less than impartial, in my opinion, Mm. but there's some really great stuff in here that's not documented anywhere else, and there is a whole chapter on Al Diatli. There's a chapter on pretty much all the players. Yeah, that is one thing Greg did with the help of his wife, which was kind of amazing, is that they spent years collecting all these interviews and hunting down these people and getting interviews with them about, yeah, what kind of a guy Roger was, what was happening around that time? What do you remember? So yeah. And in the name game, just to make things more confusing again, Greg Long's wife's name is Patricia or Pat. Uh So we got Pat Long, we got Patricia Patterson, Roger's wife. Then we got the Bigfoot creature that we're calling Patty. So there's Patty, Pat, Pat, there's a lot of padding going on. (laughs) But anyway, In this book, their chapter about Diatli and their interview with him, which they recorded, the quotes from that interview are really fascinating, and it does show a lot of insight into Al Diatli's character. I would say, after reading that interview, that you could easily describe him as a very opportunistic person. And, I mean, he was a self-made man. He had this asphalt company and concrete company that he got, believe it or not, I think his dad got it when the man who owned it died. Yeah. And that man had a debt to Diatli's dad. So Diatli's dad took over the company and it wound up turning into a flourishing company and he made a lot of money. I remember seeing the figure 95 million. I think that was one year's income or something like well, that. Well, I, I, yeah, I, but, I would believe if you get a lot of uh, state and government contracts. Yeah, to pave highways make, yeah, and stuff like go. that, you're making a fortune. And Al Diatli actually has a famously and easy to find on the internet monstrous house up in Yakima. So this gives you a little indication into his background. He he bootstrapped himself up. It was a grassroots thing where he turned that company into something big. And when you hear his interview with Greg Long, what is abundantly clear is that when this film came in and the idea of it was that he saw dollar signs. 
Mm -hmm. And he saw those dollar signs irrespective of the idea of whether or not he believed in Bigfoot, whether it was real, whether it wasn't. All he knew was there was money to be made. Whatever that suit was packed full of, it was money. If it was a <laughs> yeah, suit. if it was a That's suit. That's the thing. He didn't even care. I don't think he really, yeah, I don't yeah. think he really cared. I think he was minimally interested in it one way or the other, but really it was an item that popped into his lap that he could now exploit, I mean, for commercial use. Yes, and towards the end of Long's interview with him, one thing that he said was that he still hadn't really reconciled the whole thing because he was in that camp. He was like, well, you know, I think maybe it might be real. He believes in the film in the end. Now, this is what he said to Greg Long, Mm. that he believed in the film but wasn't sure about the overall idea of Bigfoot because of the lack of bones, the lack of dung, the lack of bodies found, other kinds of witnesses. Also, he said, I've paved roads all up through the mountains around here with all my crews. I've been everywhere, never seen anything. Yeah. But he stopped short of saying that he thought the film was fake, out and out fake. So I think that's really interesting. But the point that I wanted to make here is that when we're thinking about Diatli, it seems a whole lot like Diatli kind of swooped in and said, okay, Roger, step aside. I'm going to take care of this. We're going to take this thing all over the country. And he did. And it was incredibly successful. And most of that money did not find its way to Roger. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, talk about business people. You could say that Roger was a schemer, Roger Patterson, but he was more dreamer than schemer. Yes. Diatley was the one who knew how business worked. For example, Patterson eventually sold conflicting distribution rights to the film which then turned into a huge legal mess to sort out by those parties left with it. Yeah, it's like, okay, you have exclusive rights. Oh, wait, you've got exclusive rights too, and you. Well, I don't think it was like the producers where they're overselling stock in a hit, because if it was a hit, then they'd have to pay out. If it was a flop, then it gets canceled, and you just lose your money, you lose your investment. So they try to create a flop, and it backfires. I don't think he was scheming that way, in that he knew what was going on with the film and how distribution really worked. Plus, you know, he's sick at this point. Yes. He's starting to get sick. He's not doing well. Yeah, he's He's... not doing well, and it's tremendously stressing all the stuff that's going on because he's getting flack, he's getting praise, he's getting interest, he's getting denials. He had Hodgkin's lymphoma, which came and went for him over the years. At some points, it was beaten back into remission, and then it came back, and eventually it is what killed him in 1972, only a few years after this took place. So you would think about him being concerned about his family and his wife and that sort of thing. And this is another thing that I want to say when you look at the history of Roger Patterson and the situation and the idea of him trying to make money off of it. And also the idea of sort of possibly being taken advantage of Mm -hmm. by members of his own extended family. That all seems plausible. And also there's nothing wrong to me with him thinking after he got this and he saw this film thinking, I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be rich. Roger, you mean? Roger, Of course. Yeah, Yeah, this is going to be, look at this movie. I have evidence, the best evidence ever of a Bigfoot. If it's not a hoax, that's what he's thinking. And just because he's thinking that doesn't mean that he necessarily perpetrated a hoax. And also because he's trying to make money off of it doesn't make him a bad person or an untrustworthy person. Although there's lots of people, and we'll talk about his character, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, the the character assassination, which people have gone to great trouble to do with him. I do feel in a lot of ways, like Greg Long's book works pretty hard at making Roger look entirely untrustworthy, almost to a, a point of aggressiveness. Well, as I say, if you can't attack what's in the film, you attack the person who made the film. Right. And again, I want to remind everyone 
You can talk all you want about all the people that were involved in this project. That is anecdotal hearsay. And sure, you can interview them, and it's fascinating, and we love interviews. And hey, we've relied on eyewitness testimony ourselves and stories that we've covered. Mm -hmm. And we know that it has flaws in it. But in this story, what we usually don't get when we talk about a legend on our show mm -hmm. or some folklore, we usually don't get hard empirical evidence that you can look at and use your senses to evaluate. And that's what the movie is. So in a lot of ways, you can talk to all these people. It's irrelevant to what the film itself reveals. Yes, except I believe that uh, Daniel Perez, <laughs> it was a good exchange here. And I think it was directed towards Greg Long. Daniel Perez, one of the greats of Bigfoot research here, living locally and who studied it. And one of the first, I believe, to compile all these facts. And Local to LA. Dates yes. and, and yeah, lives in Riverside, I believe, and was one of the first to compile this into a comprehensive timeline, which other authors then borrowed and looked to as being very definitive. So he was saying like, well, I mean, just look at it. It's like, if this was a suit, then our scientists today should be able to easily duplicate it. Why haven't they? To which Greg Long just replies, well, if this film is what you're thinking of evidence and ain't cutting it for me, sorry, it's just not evidence. Well, I would say you may not like the evidence, but it's better than anecdotal evidence or circumstantial evidence in that it is something on film you can look to. How like is, I said, you, you yeah, may not, you that may not quote think, is crazy. <laughs> How is something that's recorded on a hard format not evidence? It's by definition evidence. Well, it's, it's the ultimate it's, evidence. What he's saying is he it's not evidence enough for him personally, and which not I understand. That, it's an analog format. You can't right. doctor it with any ease without noticing that it's doctored. Nowadays, digital evidence, easy to mess with. Right. Analog evidence, not easy at all. In fact, bordering on impossible. Again, we go back to this old argument. If you don't believe that Bigfoot is possible, at all, then it has to be man-made. It has to be hoaxed somehow or just not what you're seeing. And that's where he lies. So to him, you know what I'm saying? You're throwing that out initially before you even consider it because that can exist on film. Right. So then it, it even though I can't make a connection right. between the reason that it doesn't exist on film and that reasoning, Bigfoot doesn't exist, therefore the film's a hoax. I'm gonna fill in the gaps by making everybody who gathered the evidence look like a jerk. Well, yeah. That's, that's how I'm going to do it. It's a philosophical argument in that if you can't analyze what's on there or you don't accept it at all, then you look to the people that are around it because that's another angle to attack it. And you're not attacking then what's on the film. You're looking at the likelihood of could this be a hoax? Let's look at the people involved. Are they the type that would commit this kind of fraud? Are they scientists to begin with, or are they regular blue-collar folks that Again, are a little bit shady? And that's you know you're, you're useful kind of, information, yeah. but it's A, it's subjective, and it's speculative, and it'll never be more than subjective and speculative. So you'll have to decide. You read it. You read Greg Long's book and all the things he says about Roger, and if at the end of the book you'll be like, there's no question this guy faked it. Look at how he lived. But when I read about Roger Patterson and Greg Long's book, yeah, I see a guy, even in Greg's own interview with Al Diotley, Al, who seems like, you know, he was going to go where he needed to go to get his profit and, and take advantage of things to the extent that he could. Even he says, well, you know, Roger's heart was more or less in the right place. He wasn't out to intentionally shaft people because there are stories about him. Al was was saying he always actually, I believe he always actually intended to pay you. He just wasn't so good at managing things. And no, he, it wasn't that <laughs> I'm trying to steal this from you. It seemed to, the implication to me seemed to be, and again, 
we're speculating, yeah. but all these interviews are speculative and anecdotal. Also, 25 years after the interview, after the, yeah, I believe yeah. he's, I believe Greg Long started in 1995 to yeah. get into this. He was interested in Pacific Northwest stories and collecting stuff, and he just kind of got into this like a lot of people, and then went and started uh, interviewing as many people as he could connected with this. But it's been quite a while after the actual incident happened, so you're asking people to recall something that's 25, 30 years old. Right. And getting back to my point, I guess the implication for me was from Al Diatli, they talk a lot about the Patterson family and the and, yeah, the, yeah. and the kids and the nature of, there's a lot of casting aspersions, I guess. Well, it's, and it's, I, it's I, I think usual family dynamics. And then it's, it's the deadbeat brother-in-law, not so much a deadbeat, but he's like, he's always got these crazy schemes. And I'm always asked to chip in with some money to help him out here and there. And and he's kind of amusing, but he's also sometimes kind of annoying. So I give him some money and he goes away, you know, just that kind of dynamic. And I'm not sure what Roger thought of Diatli, but just like, well, I got to go to this guy and, you know, try and get him on board. And so I'm beholden to him because I don't have much money of my own. The typical family dynamics. Well, that was a really great thing that you said. And I don't know if you even made it up just now, but when you said he was more of a dreamer than a schemer. Yeah. Did you come up with that? Or did you I did, but it sounds like a very trite. Uh, I know, I like it. I, I do like it because very banal, I, yeah. I guess it strikes a chord with me because I'm kind of a dreamer and a schemer. I think my <laughs> wife would say I was a schemer. I and mean, at midnight, what's the. Uh, I, I've tried a yeah. lot of things over the years and most of them didn't work out. I even walked away from a six figure job at one point to try and start a dot com, and that didn't work out right. either. <laughs> right. But if I wasn't that kind of person, I think it's safe to say, from my point of view, Astonishing Legends wouldn't be here. And so I can relate yeah, it wasn't to the that. the smartest thing to try and start. It I wasn't. <laughs> and, and at the time that we started it, people were barely making income of any kind. And, right. and we've been blessed to get to the point that we're at with it. And, you know, we put in a lot of work. It's hardest I've ever worked in my life, but I love it. And I love doing this show. And that's what drove me to doing it. And I feel a little bit like I can relate to Roger's excitement about Bigfoot and about the idea of filming. And he's getting these 16 millimeter cameras and he's going out to these hard to find places. And if he can't find the creature itself, he's still trying to document what it's like hunting for the creature. Mm -hmm. And I can see how he would be excited and I can see how exciting it must have been, you know, falling off the horse. Can you imagine that minute or, or two of activity and then filming and, and running and then not knowing what you got and those ensuing, like we said, it's all played out pretty quickly over the following days. But the other thing that I've seen, and this is something that I've seen too, and this is another comparison, but, you know, because my wife works here in television and has for years and years, when someone comes along who has a good idea or something gets greenlit to go, the other thing that comes out of the woodwork is all the people who want to capitalize on it, who mm -hmm. do not and could not come up with ideas of their own to save their lives. Mm -hmm. But what they can do <laughs> is take advantage of the person that had the idea. Right, right. And that's the other aspect of it. And it's one of the reasons that, at least up until now, we remain an indie show. We want to stay in control of what we're doing. So in the bigger picture, I relate to Roger, and I understand that, you know, maybe he did some questionable things. I never did that. I didn't borrow money from people. I've never <laughs> did that. I didn't pay back. Yeah, yeah. I've never been arrested for renting something and hanging on to it too long or whatever. But I am more sympathetic with the idea of Roger's character, even as negatively as it's portrayed in Greg's book. And I would, as someone who's sympathetic to it, 
I don't think it necessarily dictates that this guy went to a ton of trouble to create a hoax. So that's just something I wanted to say, and we can go deeper on it in our final conclusions. But yeah, to your point of what his attitude was, it's been said often about Roger that he wasn't the type for a desk job. He wasn't a nine to five kind of guy. He didn't want to be trapped in an office. That's why he was a cowboy, a rodeo rider, worked outdoors, had, uh, I think at one point he was trying to get pet goats for kids to ride and have a... Uh, a Angora a, 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 goats. A, yeah, yeah, little are, goats. And he made little tiny wagons and Al Diatli financed that. He made tiny little wagons and they, because he went to a, a farmer's market type situation or he went somewhere to a fair or a petting zoo and he saw people with the... And they were charging the kids to ride the goats. And so he came up with that. It reminds me yeah. of Kurt Russell's character in um, <laughs> Overboard, the original <laughs> Overboard, uh-huh. when he was trying to do the putt-putt place, you know? Yeah, and right. and uh, it's, he's it's, kind of a yeah. ne'er-do-well, but he's like, here's this idea. And, you know, who knows? Maybe he would have made business with the Angora goat. Yeah, like, well, how many parents out there thing? now, yeah, have taken their kids to a petting zoo? They exist. It's a business model that seems to work or people wouldn't be doing it. But the other point I wanted to talk about in the independent person, the layman, the layperson versus the authority and the structured academic viewpoint. I believe it was Bill Munns that said this, or it may have been John Green. I can't remember who quoted this, that saying, we have a terrible propensity as human beings in general to whatever someone who's of authority, like a scientist or of higher education or a politician, well, not so much you know, anymore, but somebody in authority to make a statement or a claim And we readily believe it, but somebody who's just an average person who claims to have witnessed or seen something, we take with immediate suspicion because they aren't as high in society as these other people that we look up to or respect, that immediately it must be wrong. But logically, there's no reason one statement or experience, you're not talking about a scientific approach. Roger's not telling you what type of primate this is or what it is, he just knows it's not a bear. You know, so you don't have to believe his scientific approach to it. He's just telling you, I got this on film. I'm being honest. There it is. If it had been captured by a team at the Smithsonian, yeah, I'd believe that probably more because, well, they're scientists, like they're coming out and saying it. But if one person is a scientist and they say that they believe in it or claim it, we're more likely to believe it. Unless it's something like this, because Dr. Grover Krantz was a scientist in this very field, exactly the type of person you'd ask about it. And a lot of people shunned him from then on and disbelieved him. So how many scientists would it take? What kind of evidence would you need? Well, you'd need a body. And that's what Roger said afterwards, as well as Bob. It's like, man, maybe maybe we should just shot the thing. You know, that would have settled it. But speaking of that independent spirit, though, and not going with the flow and having that kind of dream of wanting to make something for the world, and you ended up by accident or who knows, whatever you want to believe, you capture it. And you want to distribute it to the world. How do you do that? Well, this is the time before the internet where everybody has a show. Anybody can do a podcast. Case in point, you and I. Yes, that's one of the problems. Yeah, any moron can get some mics and and put themselves out (laughs) there. Or two morons. Yeah, exactly. It takes two of us to even do the job of one person. But (laughs) no, anybody can do a show. You can stream it from your phone. Back then, like, well, how do you get a movie shown? Well, as we said before, that four-walling technique is how you did it. And you didn't make a huge amount of money. Some films, of course, were very popular and made a decent living, let's say, for the people that were four-walling it or distributing it or the very small company that was doing it. 
you know, and maybe it was a million or two over the course of their history, but not like the movie studios now. It certainly wasn't Netflix or Amazon Studios or, or Hulu or all these other streamers, which are now getting into their own production because that's profitable. So Roger did what he could, which at the time is forewalling, that term, where you take it yourself and you go and you are the distributor. And Patterson was doing his best to promote the film by giving broadcast interviews in the towns where the film was going to be shown. And then he also made appearances and showed clips on some major TV talk shows of the day, including The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. You remember that? I know. You remember? Of course yeah, I remember I that. You know, but a lot, of, I mean, yeah. a lot of young folks don't even know who that is. He passed away before they were even born. So Amazing show. Yeah. Well, the Merv Griffin show, that was another huge one when I was a kid. This one was a little bit before my time, but I have seen clips. Is Joey Bishop's talk show. So people who are late 50s, early 60s and, and older might remember that one. Well, along with these appearances and the print articles about it, the Patterson-Gimlin film had gained a decent amount of buzz in the U.S. and eventually the world. This is Dana Mahar, transmitting all the way live from the Watermelon Mountains, saying thank you for joining the gathering at Astonishing Legends with your hosts, the dynamic duo of digression, Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, kick back and relax with your peyote milkshake, and enjoy the abduction. In the years after the PGF became public, and to this day, there have been numerous claims that the Patterson-Gimlin film was an elaborate hoax staged by Roger Patterson for money and fame, and with or without the help of Bob Gimlin, and possible others like Bob Hieronymus, an associate of Patterson's who claimed to be the guy wearing the suit. A few allegations of a hoax come from a scientific or motion picture special effects viewpoint, but those mostly, if not all, deal with analyzing the being that was caught on film, whether it displayed ape-like primate locomotor behavior or more human-like characteristics, or whether or not the appearance of the creature was that of a man-made ape costume or natural. Now, most of the allegations that a fraud was committed come from scrutinizing the character and history of Roger Patterson himself. A thorough examination of Patterson's dealings have been culled together in a book by Greg Long called The Making of Bigfoot, The Inside Story, which came out in 2004, right? Yeah, we referenced this earlier, this book, we have it right here in front of us and took numerous notes from it. So it's very it's a, comprehensive. Uh, well, in terms of interviews, it's a lot yeah. of interviews with a lot of people associated with the story. And in that way, it's a Bible. I personally don't feel like the interviews are as impartial as they should be, but it is really a good resource. Well, he did do that. It's been heavily criticized by those who are proponents of the film as being real. But those who are skeptical of the film will look to that, again, as overwhelming evidence that Roger Patterson himself was a fraud. And also the other part that's overwhelming about it is the confirmation bias. But that's another story. <laughs> when you look at it, it's definitely got a, a huge slant. There's there. a lot of, it's I occurring. mean, it's not obviously, it's not a um, trial or a criminal investigation, but I would go so far as to say there's a fair amount of leading the witness in the interviews. Oh, yeah, yeah. So if but you're... still, it's good to have them. It's good to <laughs> no, you get a he... real sense of people's personalities, especially the chapter on Aldi Atley, who was Roger's brother-in-law, who figures very prominently in the overall story of what happened after the film was shot. So yeah, exactly. And there's that guy's an interesting character, no matter how much you're leading him. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you can tell, I think, from the book, and I'm not sure he even hides this, is that he starts to form a definite thinking and agenda as far as how that he does not believe the film is real. 
And then the questions thereafter kind of all kind of steer people towards that. But if that's your thing, so be it. It's a good resource anyway. You should look at every side, we believe. Well, Greg Long, at least at the time, was a technical writer for a tech firm, and he started collecting years of interviews of Patterson's associates and circumstantial evidence starting in 1995, which generally led him to the conclusion that Patterson was a con man, a charlatan, a shady schemer who was out to hoax a staging of a Bigfoot sighting and then get rich off the film. A carpetbagger. <laughs> right. It's, well, that can kind of happen when you do stiff people either accidentally or by circumstance or intentionally, and you get enough of those folks together, it doesn't paint a good picture. And unfortunately, when you end up stiffing a few people by accident or on purpose, whatever the cause is, just by circumstance, people are going to get upset and they're going to have a negative picture of you. And unfortunately, that's what happened to Roger. And also, unfortunately, Roger Patterson died from cancer on January 15th, 1972, at the young age of 39 specifically of Hodgkin's lymphoma, as we mentioned before, but he claimed right to the end that the creature on the film was real and not a hoax. The interesting thing about this is that in our research, we've since uncovered that Bob visited Roger on his deathbed. And when Roger was near the end, all he was talking to Bob about was getting tranquilizers and going back out there and getting Patty and tranquilizing her and bringing her out so the whole world could see. And again, if he's perpetrating a hoax, he's taking that right up to his dying breath. I just want to make that clear. You can always see both sides of it. With Bob, the, by the way. Yeah, he was with him. The sole witness, other witness to this incident. And what I was going to say is that the critics will still say, well, there you go. He just wanted to do it again, make more money. He knows he's dying. He just needs more money for his family. Well, he's on his deathbed. He's not getting up from it. And I think he knows that. But that hope never dies. And it's a very powerful motivator in that it also paints a picture for the proponents of the film saying that he genuinely loved this subject. He was genuine in his pursuits. This event just happened to fall into his lap. So one of those be careful what you wish for kind of things. And it shows that Roger in his final days never gave up that hope that he was still passionate about it, even if it was unrealistic. And maybe that's the kind of guy he was passionate, but maybe a little unrealistic. Well, Bob Gimlin, for his part, has always maintained that he was never part of a hoax. But there is a quote from him that is out there in that he was thinking about it years later that maybe it was possible that Roger may have fooled him. And that ended up in a 1999 telephone interview for the show The X Creatures, which is a BBC show. And I believe the producer, Chris Packham, asked Gimlin about what he believed about Roger's involvement or his own involvement. And what Bob said was, quote, I was totally convinced that no one could fool me. And of course, I'm an older man now. And I think there could have been the possibility of a hoax, but it would have had to have been really well planned by Roger. So that's the quote you'll see out there on the websites of the literature. However, we spoke to Bob just recently and asked him about that. And he clarified. He said, well, that was a long time ago. And it was just kind of a thought I put out there. So it's not exactly out of context, but it's just a thought. He said, I don't feel that way now, that Bob totally believed what he saw that day and does not believe that Roger ever hoaxed him. But back then in 1999, he was an older man, of course, than when the sighting occurred, and he'd given a lot of years to think about, and he wondered, like, all right, well, I know what I saw, but maybe it was some kind of elaborate hoax. I don't know. And in the years since then, he's settled on 
his beliefs firmly. And that's why he's coming out now to the public, giving his opinion after all these years. The other thing that I think that points to pretty clearly is that if he was considering that in 1999, what he was saying, even if he's changed his mind about it, was that as far as he's concerned, it was real. And if it had been a hoax, it certainly didn't involve him because it would have yeah. had to involve Roger tricking him. Right. I want that to be clear. If there was a hoax going on, the only way in Bob Gimlin's mind that it even he could have entertained the idea of it was that Roger did it and he didn't know it. And I think that makes it pretty clear that Bob is not part of a hoax, no matter what, whether Roger hoaxed it or not. Yeah. And of course, we'll talk about that. That's just something to remember when you're looking at the bigger picture of Bob Gimlin's position on the film. Yeah, and that's his testimony. And so you have to believe him. But I believe if you ever get the chance to speak to Bob, you'll know right away. But getting back to Roger, you know, because of the fact that Roger was dying of cancer, some of the more cynical skeptics argued that he hoaxed it all because he knew he was dying of cancer and he wanted to leave some money to his family to help with the medical bills and expenses after he was gone, since his years-long quest for Bigfoot and trying to showcase the film had exhausted most of his savings. Now, neither Patterson nor Bob Gimlin made much of any money off the sighting and the film, and in a sense, it only caused major problems for the rest of their lives. Patterson's supporters would argue that unlike some other get-rich-quick scheme of his, and, you know, they weren't huge or nefarious schemes, they were just money-making little schemes, things that he could do to generate some income, apart from his itinerant work, you could say, in that he was not an office worker type of guy. <laughs> but apart from all that, he was genuinely interested, always, in Bigfoot and proving it existed to the world, and after the film would continue to look for more evidence in the years after. And that's what that deathbed statement tells me, is that he was never going to give up this quest as long as he could still move. Again, wrap your head around the idea of continuing to look for something if you hoaxed it prior. Right. Yeah, either you're just insane or you're just totally obsessed. Well, it seemed more of a money pit passion than a scheme after you start digging into the research here. And in the years after all their trouble from the film, both Patterson and Gimlin said they wished they'd shot the creature for financial gain and also to silence all the critics. Now, another thing Bob said is that he does not feel that way anymore. But I'm sure back then, it's as Roger was dying, and again, that wasn't too many years after that sighting, it's like, man, we should have just brought out a body because no scientist is ever going to believe any piece of captured audio or film footage or still photos or maybe even hair samples, you're going to have to bring them the whole thing. And that's what they want. And that's the same for a lot of these skeptics who aren't going to be trusting of anything other than Bigfoot in a cage that can be studied. But it's like anything else paranormal. People will not be satisfied, especially if you don't believe in it or are not willing to believe in it in the first place. Well, and I think they just, they got to a point where Bob, they were so frustrated by the lack of believers and the continuous assault on both of their characters, Bob just got to a point where he was like, I wish we'd have just shot the damn thing. Well, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, no, here it is. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm going back to uh, training horses. Right. Leave me yeah. alone. Yeah. You know, it's the ghost in the jar proposition. I always say, you're not going to believe that. It doesn't matter how many videos people have or dancing dots on a screen from an SLS connect camera. None of that matters. You either have to have a personal experience or here's the ghost. He's in a jar. Ask him questions. But you know what? Maybe they wouldn't have been able to shoot a Bigfoot. You ever think about that? Because like a lot of the people who've had a chance to shoot a Bigfoot type creature, one, they didn't end up shooting it because it looked too human. You hear that occasionally. I was kind of scared and, 
yeah, the thought runs through your head. Geez, maybe I should capture or shoot this thing. But there's something about it that's too human. And it freaks people out. And I think that's why some people don't believe in Bigfoot. Well, yeah, if you don't have a propensity for murder, you're going to have a hard time shooting something. Well, a creature that that looks or seems to be acting human. Yeah, especially no when matter it's, how hairy it is. Yeah, it's not especially if it's not attacking you or provoking you. It's just, yeah. it's kind of just walking away or doing its thing. Or maybe it's throwing rocks at you, but it's maybe not enough to be shooting at something. Or it could be like Fred Beck and his coworkers, speaking of shooting at something, you know, they claim that they did shoot one or two and it didn't seem to phase the creature. So maybe shooting it wouldn't have done any good. Anyway, the circumstantial evidence and testimony against Roger Patterson's character and behavior is an attempt not so much to disprove what you actually see on the film, but rather point out the likelihood that he was the kind of guy who would and could perpetrate such an elaborate hoax. Keep in mind, there were and are very few mainstream scientists that would even entertain analyzing the PGF itself, and therefore, there are very few detailed and thorough, serious analyses of the creature on the film. Yeah, we said this before. It's much easier to attack the person than the film, and there's very few people knowledgeable and skilled with technical expertise in this area about uh, biomechanics and primatology that would give you a serious critique of what's on the film. Most won't even bother with it. So that was frustrating to Roger, but it's also frustrating to people who take this matter seriously in that they don't debate what you see on the film or they dismiss a few things with some pat answers without really studying it like a lot of the scientists did back in 1967 into 68. Well, they have this position, well, Bigfoot can't be real, therefore the film isn't real, so all we can do is talk about the people that shot the film. However, the counterpoint to that, and Bill Munns has this opinion, and you'll be hearing from him in this series, and I have this opinion as well, I'm, I agree with Bill about this, the counterpoint to that is the film is the only thing that matters. That is the hard empirical evidence of what happened. It doesn't really matter how it got shot, who shot it, beyond using that information to determine whether or not it's a hoax, the only thing you should be analyzing is the film itself. Right. And right. because that is the empirical evidence. That is not an anecdote or hearsay or a character assassination of the guy who went out and shot the film. Then mostly what you end up with as critiques or debunking even of the film is then you go after Patterson himself because he's low-hanging fruit in that sense as far as character assassination attempts and and looking at his past dealings and people being dissatisfied with it. And that's basically what Greg Long did. And I believe you should look at that. You shouldn't dismiss it. That should be taken into, into account, but not as the main focus. It's just one part of the story here. And the main part should be what is actually on that film. Not so much was Roger Patterson a decent guy who paid all his bills on time, but also consider that. Put together the whole story and see it. So my point is that Greg Long's book is not the definitive answer against all this. It's just one element of it that should be considered. But Greg Long did a good job in finding out a lot about Roger's life and some of his dealings that surrounded the film and put it all down as a record of what was happening with Roger and his associates during the time and afterwards and beyond and their recollections far beyond. That's another thing, too, you got to keep in mind. A lot of these interviews didn't happen until, you know, what, 30 years later? Decades later, yeah. Yeah, so people's memories get a little foggy, but their internal feelings kind of stay the same or get hardened. Well, what happened to Patterson right after the filming? He was arrested within a few weeks after his return from Bluff Creek when a warrant was issued against him on October 17th, 
because he'd rented the Kodak K100 16mm movie camera back in May and had kept it longer than the return date on the rental agreement. The charges were dropped after he returned the camera in good order. So that camera was not cheap. That, I believe at the time, cost $369. Yeah. So back then, that's probably, what, a thousand or more. Well, compare yeah. it to a decent video camera nowadays, a, a decent high-def camera. I mean, you can get one cheaper than that even nowadays, but at the time, it's pretty much the equivalent of what you could get for motion pictures, moving images. So that is not a cheap item, and I'm sure that they sent the cops after him. $369 in 1967 would equal just over 2800 today. Mm -hmm. So it's a good chunk of change. But he did return it, and he did not go to jail. Again, the picture that you're going to see being put together here is that he is a little driven and a little loose on the details. And to kind of point to that, according to Gray Long's research, Patterson had been sued by a collection agency by 21 local creditors. So he owed a few people around town some money. Nothing huge, and it wasn't like you see on the news where somebody embezzles $8 million then takes off to Tahiti. It was just, you know, he was not good, let's say, with bill reminders. Renee DeHinden provided some money to help Bob Gimlin sue Al Diatley and Roger's widow, Patricia, in 1974 for his third share of the film's profits. Gimlin won his case two years later. So some people got a little bit of money, which you could sum up this whole affair because Roger, and we'll talk about this uh, in a more detail later, oversold the film rights to several entities, shall we say, at the end. It became kind of messy. I think we mentioned that previously. But what it boiled down to is that Bob Gimlin didn't get his promised third of the share of the profits of the film, and he was one of the guys there. It's called the Patterson-Gimlin film. Yeah. Not the Patterson-Gimlin-Diatley film. Right. So he rightfully sued and, and won. And there are others who'd become involved with Patterson's endeavors and had lost money, like Greg Coling or Killing, who we mentioned previously. Jerry Lee Merritt, a rockabilly musician and toy inventor from Yakima, who Patterson had visited in Los Angeles in the mid-1960s, had lost money in collaborating with Patterson. Merritt had moved back to Yakima and became Patterson's neighbor when they decided to work together on the funding for Roger's documentary, Bigfoot, America's Abominable Snowman. They both traveled down to L.A. to try and raise funds, trying several kind of wacky things, like trying to ask cowboy film star Roy Rogers for help and trying to sell Patterson's pony ride to some theme parks, but none of it came with much success. Greg Long suggests that Patterson did manage to shoot some of his footage for the documentary and did get an investment of $700 for helping to complete the film from Vilma Radford and her husband, and had even trademarked the term Bigfoot. There you go. He's got the trademark or the, uh, or I guess the copyright on that name, but it doesn't seem like they pursued copyright infringement with that. However, it seems most of the bigger investors in Roger's film were not interested. Now, Vilma Radford said Patterson made out a promissory note to repay her $850, and in addition, a 5% stake in any profits from the documentary for that $700 investment but she says she never saw any money in return. These are small amounts, piddly amounts, but if you did loan him $700 back then, it's a decent sum of money you'd want it back. You saw nothing. And so he was indeed a little bit flaky. But Patterson himself got hoaxed. According to Grover Krantz, some years after the incident, Patterson got a letter from a U.S. Air Force serviceman claiming that a Buddhist monastery in Thailand, where he was stationed, had a Bigfoot-type creature locked up. Patterson had contacted Ron Olson. Remember, he was the guy who took over Rogers Bigfoot Research Association. 
he contacted him in order to sell the theatrical rights for the clip to the film distribution company, American National Enterprises, for what Olson claimed was a pretty good sum of money. And this was in order to get funds to travel to Thailand to retrieve the beast. Now, I'm not sure <laughs> how he was going to do that, but that was the plan. It's like, I guess he rides coach. I don't, do you, uh, how do you a cage get, on a boat? Just like how do you, <laughs> I guess so. Well, again, this is the big dreamer part of Roger. It's like, we got one, we got one. Now I can finally show the world. We just got to go get it. Yeah. And unfortunately, Patterson had spent most of his remaining funds for this retrieval expedition, sending his associate Dennis Jensen first to Thailand to check it out, check out the story, and then flying to Thailand with Jensen himself after a second letter from the airman arrived, only to finally conclude that there was no creature and that the airman was, quote, mentally unbalanced, end quote. Well, we both know these kind of things attract a lot of crazies out there, and unfortunately, Roger got a hold of one. So I guess you could say it was more bad luck with an obsessed pipe dreamer or that the con man got conned. All in how you look at it, I guess. Exactly. You know, in the end, Patterson realized his shortcomings with his business acumen, and he, he knew of his own character flaws, okay? He wasn't totally self-unaware. Patterson had said to Rene DeHinden, you know, Rene, I'm the worst possible guy this could have happened to, which tells you a lot. I find that actually a pretty compelling statement because he's acknowledging that he doesn't have the best reputation for repaying money and for getting funds back to people, but he also is saying the reason that it's bad is because for him, it, it, he might be saying this is real and no one believes me because of my past. Oh, yeah. No, and no. so he's, he's trapped in, in his own image to a certain extent. It's a weird, ironic, vicious circle, vicious cycle, take your pick, that only people with this kind of charisma, it seems, or, or this willingness to put themselves out there and chase these kind of things actually get much done. They're the ones in out this there field. doing the work. Because <laughs> right. people who are buttoned up bank managers or whomever that have regular proper jobs and are upstanding in the community. They're not riding a horse into a remote area with a film camera. Exactly. So it's this type of person that Roger was. People describe him as, you know, he was kind of a charming, talkative guy and got you excited about his stuff. We all know people like that. And he got you enthused with what he was doing. Unfortunately, it was nobody who had the funds that would back him because this all sounds crazy. You're chasing a big ape in the woods. Yeah. But what did Al Diatli, his brother-in-law, have to say about him? Well, this is the thing about Diatli, and just to remind everybody who he is, he's married to Roger's younger sister, Iva. So he's a brother-in-law and fairly wealthy because he has this asphalt and paving company that he inherited from his dad, mm -hmm. actually, who took it over from a man who had passed away and had a debt to his dad. And he turned that into a, a highly profitable venture. But Diatli, if you go to Greg Long's book, you can see that Greg Long is pushing Diatli to declare whether or not he thinks the film is a hoax. And one of the things that you learn about Diatli's character is that he appears to be extremely opportunistic. And he seems like he will do anything to make a buck. And in the case of the Patterson-Gimlin film, he saw dollar signs. And one of the things he did to make a buck was push Bob Gimlin out of the picture and get this thing on the road with Roger, who also didn't see a whole lot of the money, and a fake Bob Gimlin, and have it go all over the country to make money. And of all the people who probably actually did make some money on the film, it was probably Al, who swooped in and came up with a plan to do that. And he claims, what, I think that he made 47000 but there are yeah. others that will say that it was well into six figures. Yeah, as we said uh, just previously in the last section, that... 
some people say that he told them he made hundreds of thousands of dollars off of it. Right. And that Roger, as we said, didn't see his fair share or anything close to that. Well, listen to how hard, when I talk about Greg Long sort of leading the witness, listen to this exchange in his interview with Al Diatley, which it's awesome that Greg Long got because interviews with Diatley are very hard to come by. And at this point, he's, he's still around, but he's, he's fairly ill, so he's probably not doing a lot of interviews. Here's the reasoning behind Al thinking that the Patterson-Gimlin film is a hoax. And I'm reading from page 269 of The Making of Bigfoot, The Inside Story by Greg Long. This is page 269 in the Al Atley chapter. I believe it was a hoax, of course, because my brain kicks in and says, where's the bones? Where's the carcass? There's got to be. Just can't. It just doesn't sound scientifically reasonable. The Western United States, where I've built all these roads for all these years, that this could possibly be. Long responds, I wanted the most definitive answer Diatley could give me from his own lips. I spun a scenario for him. Quote, if I came back a year from now and said, do you think that footage is a hoax? If no new information arose about it, would you say, yeah, it's most likely a hoax? Diatley replies, I've said that from day one. I don't believe. I've never. I don't think I've said it's a hoax. What I've always said is that I don't believe they exist. Long responds, but do you think the footage is a hoax? I persisted. I felt anger rising in my throat. And this is my point about Long. This is Long saying this. Yeah. yeah. He's angrily trying to get <laughs> Al Diatley to declare that the film is a hoax, which he clearly is not wanting to do for any other reason other than there's no Bigfoot bodies, which is completely unrelated to the film itself and Roger yeah. Patterson. Well, he develops a agenda for the book that the film is a hoax and Bigfoot is not real. At yeah. At least not real in this film. And here's another quote from Al. You're trying to tell me, you're asking me if I think it's a hoax. I'm just telling you I don't know whether it's a hoax or not. I don't believe in Bigfoot. It could be a Bigfoot. I don't believe yet. Now you're going to have to find me some bones. You're going to have to find me some meat, you know? You're going to have to show me more evidence. Greg writes right after that, I inhaled and controlled my mounting frustration. That's kind of all you need to know about how these <laughs> interviews go. But in this last yeah. section, Diatley does say, and I don't want to be accused of taking this out of context, Diatley does say, yeah, it doesn't mean it's authentic. Knowing Rogers, I know Roger, he would not think it, even though he loved this phenomenon. He believed in this phenomenon, no doubt about it, but I don't think he would claim it to be morally wrong to fake it, to make enough money to prove it. He wouldn't fake it for the profit of faking it because he believed too much. And he didn't take any of the money he made and increase the standards of living for him or his children. He spent it all on proving it. I, I totally agree with that. Interesting observation yeah, to me. Yeah. So what Diatley's saying is like, if he did fake this, it's not because he doesn't believe in Bigfoot. Right. But he also, just prior to that, was pretty hard on saying, I don't know if this film's a hoax, which is the right thing he should say, because he owns a paving company. He does not have the ability <laughs> to analyze the appearance of the creature in the film in this case. I mean, it would be different if you could clearly see zippers and seams and all yeah. kinds of costume evidence, but you cannot see that stuff in this film. And Al Diatley is frankly not qualified to determine whether or not it's a hoax beyond any other reason than being led by Greg Long to cast aspersions on Roger's character because Roger was loosey-goosey and flighty and liked to borrow money and do crazy schemey things and didn't always pay people back. Yeah. But the other thing that Al said in, in this very same chapter was he said, you know what? He always intended to pay you back. I yes. never believed that he was fleecing anyone. Right. He says that right in this book. Al Diatley, who was probably the most critical guy of, <laughs> of Roger in the book, he yeah. says he never set out to rip you off. He probably in his mind thought he was going to pay you back. He just didn't get around to it, which was kind of the sense we got from being around Bob Gimlin as well. 
It's yeah. just kind of like, well, Rogers, Roger. We all have friends like that. Everybody's yes. got the friend that comes <laughs> over and eats all your Cheetos and tells you he's going to get you another bag and never does. Right. So there's that thing. But I, I just wanted to point that stuff out because there's a really important human component to this story. And you have to understand the nature of all the players to get the big picture. Exactly. And as far as believing or Al Diatli's stance on whether it was a hoax, you can tell he starts off the comment saying he does not believe it. He doesn't believe Bigfoot can exist. He has no proof. I mean, he's saying he would accept proof if it were delivered, but it has to be physical. He has to see it, bones or meat or whatever. But he's starting off, it's impossible. And if you take that stance starting off, then whatever you see, which is not bones or meat, has got to be put into question. Yes. Probably fake. So yeah, he's telling you right off, he's not going to believe it if it is a film, essentially. Right. Point two is that Greg Long is kind of doing a Kevin Nealon as Bob Walters skit. Right. Remember that takeoff? He's trying to be Barbara Walters where oh, yeah. the key to the interview is getting you to cry. Yes. And so he'll do anything he can to get you to cry. Yeah. And yeah. shut a tear. And then he turns to the camera wryly and kind of gives you a knowing smile. Like, say, hey, get you to cry. <laughs> because I think the obvious payoff for that book is that it does point to the likelihood that it is a fake because look at all these things that Roger did. So obviously... The film has got to be fake because he also found some circumstantial evidence that maybe Roger had faked something before. So I think it's fair to say Greg Long's position is, take a look at this guy, Roger. He is exactly the kind of guy that would hoax something like this. Therefore, most likely because most likely Bigfoot doesn't exist, it has to be a hoax, and this is the guy who did it. And I think that stance can be fairly summed up with his book. And there's the additional component that just by the nature of that approach, he's ignoring the film itself, just for the record. That takes technical scientific skill, which is not the realm of most of the skeptics. There are some, of course, which we'll take a look at later, who are scientifically knowledgeable about this kind of thing, who raise questions and fair ones, who've actually taken a look at the film. And we'll look at that coming up. But for right now... Most of the negative associations and dealings come from the documentation in Greg Long's book with his research and extensive interviews, and there are no shortage of people who knew Patterson who felt that, you know, after dealing with him, he was nothing but a con man and a liar. Now, some Bigfoot researchers like Jeff Hilling and Bill Munns, you know, they would claim that Long's book is not much more than character assassination, and they're not afraid to tell you that, because we've heard uh, an interview. Well, yes, I've heard two interviews, both with Hilling and Munns now. Now, if the book accurately states what people who dealt with Patterson thought of him, then it is what it is. But like what both of those researchers conclude, in the end, it doesn't matter because Patterson could have been all of that. And it doesn't change what was captured on film. And that's what should be analyzed, not his character. That's going to wrap up part two of our series on the Patterson-Gimlin film. We'll be back next week with part three. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Amanda Snyder. Hi, I'm Aaron Lillis. Good evening. I'm Dana Mahar, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends. Tess is best. Tess is best. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. 
Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>